日本史学習に最高にもってこいのサイトサムライアーカイブスポッドキャストへようこそ美しい自然にあふれてる縄文時代から波乱万丈な幕末まで全時代を網羅して日本史の隅から隅まで一緒に語り合いましょうでは早速日本史の世界へはい。So,、uh, we'll, this is what we'll be tackling, and I'm Chris, and we're here with、uh, Nate and Travis. Hi, guys. Hello. So,、uh, what we'll do today is、uh, Nate is going to talk to us about the, the battle. Okay, well,、um, I, yeah, this is a, it's a long term project that I've been looking at doing for、um, a while, but was able to begin doing it in、uh, one of my classes this semester as、uh, my research topic. Uh, and so essentially, what I've completed to this point is, the, is part one of what will become part probably a, a three to four part、uh, series. But、uh, yeah. Probably eventually your master's thesis, right?、Um, well, yeah, I'm, I'm on a slightly different track. But、uh, instead of doing a thesis, I defend two research papers. But this will be.、Hmm. You know, parts one and two of this will be the two papers that I end up defending. So, more than likely, that's how things will work. But yeah, the, the,、um, I, I guess.、Uh, we should give everyone a, a sort of a historical background on the battle. And, sure.、Uh, I, well, I, I mean, I think most people have,、um, or, or at least most regular visitors to the Samurai Archives, have, have at least a little background knowledge.、Um, you have a、uh, battle took place in 1575 uh, in. Uh, Uh, the 21st day of the,、uh, the fifth month、uh, by Japanese calendar, or, or the 29th of June by the Western calendar.、Uh, and it, it took place in、um, Mikawa province, so present day Aichi Prefecture,、uh, Shinshiro City, if you were ever around there. It's a lovely place to visit. And、uh, what most people know about it, what most people have as an image, is that Takeda Katsuyori,、uh, the son of the Great Takeda Shingen,、uh, who had died several years previously. Not、uh, by a sniper's bullet, I might add. Not by a sniper's bullet,、uh, depending on, <coughs> on, on what you want to believe.、Um, if you're a, a descendant of the Tokugawa, I'm sure you want to believe that it was a sniper's bullet. But <laughs>、uh, anyway, uh, the.、Um, So, yeah, so he's taken over the clan, and, and this is one of his first major forays uh, against uh, uh, Tokugawa Ieyasu,、uh, who was, of course, the junior partner in an alliance with Oda Nobunaga,、uh, as Oda Nobunaga was consolidating power in central Japan.、Uh, he had、uh, basically jettisoned uh, the, uh, the, the shogun Ashikaga Yoshiaki a few years earlier. Uh, was set up as the central strongman himself,、uh, was going back and forth in a, in a dance、uh, with the,、uh, the imperial court.、Uh, if you read、uh, Lamer's great book on、uh, Oda Nobunaga, Japonius、uh, Tyrannus, then、uh, he gives a great uh, 
um, background of the uh, the political action going on at this time and uh, so forth. But the bottom line is that uh, Oda Nobunaga had uh, was in the middle of consolidating power in central Japan. Uh, he faced a great threat from the uh, the east in Takeda Shingen, uh, and Takeda Shingen in 1572 had soundly beaten the Tokugawa along with uh, some some token assistance forces from uh, Oda Nobunaga at the Battle of Mikatagahara. Uh, and it was only, you know, not to go too much into that battle, but it, it was pretty much luck that uh, Tokugawa Ieyasu just didn't disappear at that point. <laughs> um, Shingen, had he, had he finished the job, or had he decided to finish the job, could have very easily done so. And then unfortunately um, ended up... Uh Dying. Yeah, he, he dies um, then in the next year, so doesn't really get to follow any of that up, and so that's that falls to his son Katsuyori, who, by all accounts, prior to Nagashino, is well thought of as a as a military uh, commander. Uh, his bravery was was well uh, documented. He was uh, known as a very aggressive commander, which was considered a good thing, and really. You know, there, there's a lot of, in hindsight, stuff written about him as a, as a horrible commander, and, and oh, we should have seen this coming. But uh, in in reality, there wasn't really a whole lot that that, that just, indicated where things were headed. Was that just sour grapes by the surviving uh, clansmen? Uh, yeah, actually, I think so. Um, I, I th- one of the beliefs I hold on to battle is that you know our image of Katsuyori. I mean, yeah, he, he made some mistakes, and we'll get into that. But from the Takeda side, the the history of the Takeda clan is written in the uh, is in the Koyogunkan, which was compiled, well, attributed to anyway, Kosaka Masanobu. Uh, who was one of uh, Shingen's generals, uh, was very close uh, with Shingen. Uh, some say that, uh, that they were lovers. Uh, so obviously he had a very great attachment to, uh, emotionally to Takeda Shingen. So it makes sense that he would want to sort of right. say that you know, the great glories of Shingen's time were ruined by... Exactly. By that, so by the, the way the history plays out is that, uh, you know, Katsuyori comes along, takes over the clan, loses Nagashino, it's all downhill from there. Eventually the clan's wiped out. You know, Masanobu writes this later, uh, later to be compiled into one document by Obata Kagenori, but, and, and it, it becomes this big story of, just like you said, you know, the great Shingen, his legacy ruined by his fool son Katsuyori, uh, and so everything that's written about Katsuyori in the one document that we have uh, that covers the Takeda on a grand scale is colored with this this feeling. So really, that's where a lot of and that's where um, a lot of my interest has has taken me is looking at how what we think we know isn't really what we know because it's all, it's all through some lens like this, regardless sure. of whether it's the Takeda after the fact or the Tokugawa or, or, or whomever it may be. Well, with that in mind, uh, what is the standard view of the battle? Okay, so the standard view of the battle is that um, Katsuyori had invaded uh, Mikawa with about uh, 15,000 uh, soldiers uh, and surrounded the castle of Nagashino and uh, this was held by a samurai who served uh, Tokugawa Ieyasu. Um, it was held by uh, Okudaira Saramasa uh, and there's some backstory there. Um, Saramasa and uh, his father had actually 
uh, originally been Tokugawa retainers and were compelled uh, after an invasion to join the Takeda, which was fairly common that you know samurai switched sides during the Sengoku period, so that's nothing all that exciting. However, Kasiyori uh, held you know family members hostage. Uh, his son and wife, you know, as a guarantee of his good behavior. Uh, well, when Shingen died, uh, the uh, Okudaras decided, okay, that's that's it. This is enough. We we're going to uh, we're going to go we're going to cross back over to the Tokugawa side because that's where true loyalty lies. Kasiyori, of course, you know, had these hostages. They left his side. So what does he do? He executes the hostages. That's what you did in these situations. So that's the whole point of having hostages. That's the whole point of having hostages. That's correct. Uh, so Sadamasa, um, of course, you know, is very upset at this uh, and bears a grudge against Katsuyori. So it, it, it was kind of provocative for both sides to have Sadamasa uh, as the commander of this border uh, garrison uh, of Nagashino, uh, pretty much sitting uh, on the border between uh, the uh, Tokugawa and Takeda. Uh, domains. So, regardless of, of the the strategic reasons behind it, we end up with Katsuyori uh, and a force of 15,000 surrounding Nagashino Castle. Nagashino uh, Castle tries to hold, you know, does actually does a very good job of holding out for a, a few days, and but eventually they realize that even though they have the military supplies to hold out, and they have the will to hold out, they don't have all the food and, and water that they need to right. you know, provision the garrison. Uh, so they've only got a few days left. So they send uh, a, uh, a runner uh, out to Tokugawa Ieyasu to ask for help. And that person is named uh, Tori Sunemon. And uh, that, that's a, a side legend in this whole thing that, that is actually pretty interesting, but we'll, we'll leave uh, alone for now. So anyway, he goes, asks Tokugawa Ieyasu, who had by this point has linked up with Oda Nobunaga, says, you know, please come to the garrison's assistance. They say, yep, we're coming. And eventually they bring a force of what is thought to be 38,000 troops to relieve the castle of Nagashino and attack Takeda Katsuyori. 30,000 Oda troops, 8,000 Tokugawa troops. Uh, this is thought roughly to be about half of their available manpower at the time, so it's a pretty significant mobilization. Uh, the 15,000 that uh, Katsuyori has is also considered half of his force, uh, with the other half remaining up under Kosaka Masanobu, protecting Kai and Shinano from invasion by other enemies, most you know, notoriously Usu like Kenshin. Kenshin yeah. <laughs> um, so, just to jump back real quickly to the uh, to the Koyogunkan, here we you know we have this history written by Kosaka Masanobu saying how horrible Katsuyori's decisions were made at uh, Nagashino when Masanobu wasn't even there. So, moving right along, uh, the the story goes that the older generals uh, like uh, this is the official yes, this the is the official version of events. Um, that like uh, Baba Nobufusa uh, or uh, Yamagata Masakage uh, tried to convince Katsuyori to retreat in the face of the, this force that was twice his size. Uh, you know, basically saying, "Look, we're 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 kind of caught out of position. Need to get out of here, and we can come back and fight another day." And Katsuyori basically shuts them down and says, "No, we're going to attack." They come back to him and say, "Okay, if you're dead set on fighting." Let's make an effort to take the castle before Oda Nobunaga gets here. 
so that way we at least have defensive fortifications can can you know we can hold him off for however long we need to uh, we'll have a much better chance of, of winning the battle if we do that and he says no we're gonna go meet him out you know in an open field and attack and we're going to because defeat we him. have the best cavalry because in all of Japan. we have the best cavalry in all of Japan and yes um, I'm glad you brought that up because that's one of the enduring myths of, of all of this uh, is that the Takeda were a superior cavalry force and uh, the fear of their cavalry was known far and wide across the land uh, and and there's lots of discussion and, and, and theories on that, but that helps set the stage for the impression of the actual battle later on. So anyway, okay, so Katsuyori's decided to fight, uh, which everybody and their brother can, uh, who's a general underneath him, uh, looks at and says, wow, this is the stupidest thing that we're, we could possibly do. We're all going to get slaughtered. So... Um, you know, they basically say their prayers, so to speak, and, you know, well, it's been nice nice serving with you. We're all going to die. Did they, did they come up with this uh, doom and gloom before they even went to the field? That's the, the, if you, you know, read through some of the uh, the, the histories, quote-unquote histories, and, uh, you know, watch a lot of the theatrical adaptation, then yes, that's... Before they even got out to the palace. That's, that's the... the well, that seems pretty deterministic. Yes, it does seem pretty deterministic. what the uh, um, result was. Exactly. So, Whereas if they, he, had, he had won the battle, the, the records would say uh, that the general supported him 100%. Of course. Yeah, of course, because yeah, he won. Because he had these amazing <laughs> tactics to you know, overcome a larger enemy. That's right. Excellent That's cavalry right. charge. Um, so, yeah. So, meanwhile, uh, Oda Nobunaga and Tokugawa Ieyasu advanced to Nagashino, and they set up uh, their position in a place called Shitaragahara. Uh, and that's where the actual battle takes place, even though it's named after Nagashino because, because that was the castle. Um, so they set up in a uh, in a line facing the east. Uh, so their their thirty eight thousand are lined up north north to south. And here's where a lot of uh, the fascination comes in with people's the the commonly pictured account says that uh, Nobunaga had three thousand uh, guns. Uh, arquebuses. Uh, so Is that Ar- Archibai? Ar- Archibai? Uh, <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so this is supposedly an unheard of amount, uh, quite a large amount to bring to, to one battle. Uh, and But beyond this is what he decides to do with them. He has his soldiers build uh, essentially what becomes stockades defensive positions uh, built with uh, tree logs and like a uh, crosshatch pattern for his soldiers to get behind and use as barricades against the vaunted Takeda cavalry charge to break up the cavalry charge, provide them defensive positions to fire from. So this is combined with the 3,000 guns, you know, putting them behind these positions uh, to create a fairly strong defensive position. Now, beyond this, the next step that, that takes him into military, you know, geniushood is uh, the, the, that uh, supposedly this is the first instance uh, of rotating volley fire that is ever that ever occurs in the way you read some historical accounts of the battle. So what that means is, uh, if you've ever seen old movies uh, like uh, Shaka Zulu of the old British uh, troops. 
uh, fighting against the Zulus, and they're you know very precise, orderly. You know, one rank is firing from their knees while the rank behind them is getting ready to fire, and the the third rank in the back is is uh, loading is, is loading, and it's very precise and very uh, very professional. Well, that's the much more updated image of what some historians think Nobunaga did. Um, however, that's the image that people carry in their head. Uh, the, the concept being that he had his 3,000 uh, soldiers divided into ranks of, into three ranks of 1,000 each. And you, so you had 1,000 soldiers firing, 1,000 soldiers getting ready to fire, and, and uh, the third thousand soldiers uh, were loading and it kept up a constant barrage of fire so this gives us the image of the Takeda cavalry deciding to charge forth attacking these barricades that they have no hope of getting around uh, and they are just mown down by this withering fire from the Oda positions much like you know British soldiers charging German machine gun positions in World War One uh, if you watch the movie uh, Kagemusha, which is a fantastic movie that I love, except for the last scene. <laughs> yeah, so if if you watch the last scene, then it's the then you see the, the the it's pretty much the common image, you know, thousands of uh, Oda soldiers in line behind the, this fence line, uh, all of them carrying guns. The Takeda charge forth in this massive cavalry charge across flat ground. Uh, and get absolutely devastated, and after five minutes of firing, no one on the Takeda side except for Katsuyori and his, his commanders are left alive, and uh, it's a rout, and thus we have the end of the Takeda clan. And that's the legend of the battle. That's the legend, <laughs> and yeah. So we should probably uh, take a break now, okay. and uh, come back in a moment. Hi, my name is Daniel O'Grady and I'm the creator of the Japanese Castle Explorer website. And if you find yourself on the internet with some moments to spare, I recommend you come and have a look. There's information, pictures and maps of over 130 of Japan's castles. To find us, just enter Japanese Castle Explorer into your favorite search engine. We're also on Facebook and Twitter, so come and say hi. See ya! Well, in your outline, you talk about uh, you talk about how Nagashino is cited by not not just by Japanese historians but by world historians as a very significant moment in the history of uh, world military history. Right. So, could you elaborate on that? Especially okay. uh, Jeffrey Parker. Yes. Yes. Okay. Well, because um, uh, as far as I remember, he was the first non-Asian-focused historian who who really sort of held latched out. onto it. Yeah. Well. He, he's really the first, yeah, I, I guess non-Asian-focused historian is the best way to put it. So we, we have this, what I just talked about is this lasting image of Nagashino. And, and uh, you know, anybody viewing that comes away with the impression of, okay, it's, it's guns versus cavalry. It's new versus old. It's advanced modern military techniques versus the old way of doing things. Mm. Um, these are all very superficial conclusions, but they're very easy conclusions to draw and if, and if, if you have a shallow base of knowledge. Yeah. And it fits into a nice narrative of, I haven't read Parker, but yeah. um, you know, but I remember from my medieval history classes about, fully blank on the name of the battle, but certain battles in the Hundred Years' War when suddenly you know, the British have pikes against the French uh, cavalry 
as well as Welsh longbows, and suddenly it changes everything. Right, right. And, and those are very key uh, examples in this argument. Uh, Jeffrey Parker... And the book is called uh, The Military the Revolution. The Military Revolution, 1560 to 1660. And it, it's actually a pretty interesting read. And I, I thought it was. I he it was well he does a, a very good job of, of outlining his case. Parker's basic premise is that there was a, a revolution in military tactics... Well, actually, I should back up. He, he piggybacks off of a, uh, a lecture done by uh, Michael Roberts uh, in the 50s that coined the term military revolution and essentially outlined the fact that there was a, a revolution in tactics that came about in Europe in warfare at this time from uh, the latter half of the 16th century through the 17th century. And that these changes that are identified are an increase in uh, number of troops, an increase in uh, fortification size, uh, an increase in uh, the complexity of warfare, both strategically and in what it took to provide for uh, forces. And therefore, that led to an increase of burden and effect on the on average everyday life. You know, where previously you could have been a peasant, and okay, the nobles were all fighting each other, uh, and it really didn't affect you. It simply determined who you paid your taxes to. Um, now you were being called to service uh, either through military service or by providing taxes to the state. And the state's wars had a much greater impact on your life. So Parker comes in, and, and he's what I call a technological determinist. Uh, he identifies, or, or purports to identify, that the reason for all these changes was one of technological change. Uh, that it's more specifically the introduction of guns, uh, gunpowder weapons in the form of arquebuses and cannons, uh, to warfare from the, the late 1400s on. Um, brought about such radical changes that by the time we get into the middle of the 16th century, warfare has completely changed. His argument is based on the fact that, A, small arms weapons, uh, the arquebus or the, or the matchlock musket, uh, can be used by essentially anybody, whereas a bowman or, a, a, or even worse, a knight, required years and years of training, and you have to have a certain level of skill. Uh, the arquebus was such that you didn't have to have very much skill to be able to shoot it with the amount of accuracy it was capable of. So this allowed feudal, what would have been feudal lords as, as we progress into, into this age, it allowed people to take, um, the, these commanders to take uh, less skilled laborers and turn them into soldiers. Uh, so rather than having to spend years and years training somebody to become a longbow archer, uh, you could take somebody, teach them a few rudimentary things about how to load and fire a gun, and boom, you have a soldier. So in this sense, armies grow. Compounded with that, as your army's growing, you have to have larger fortifications to house them in. Right. You also have to have larger fortifications to defend against the other armies around you that are growing. Right. And we now have cannon as well. So you need to redesign your fortifications. Uh, if you imagine the Tower of London with very f up and down flat walls, uh, that was not the ideal fortification to be in if it's being pounded with cannon. Uh, so he identifies what he calls the uh, Tres Italien, uh, which was a otherwise known as an artillery fort with sloped lower sloped walls that were 
better physically suited to handle the bombardment from cannon fire and thus protect the the uh, defenders inside. Uh, this is all great and dandy. However, to build one of these fortifications was an inordinate expense in both manpower and materials. So therefore, this technological uh, spark has driven the need for better administration and better taxation techniques to come up with all the materials and manpower necessary to build these fortifications. So in this, he traces it, uh, and as it goes on, it's essentially that gunpowder technology introduced all these changes to warfare which necessitated all the administrative and economic changes that led to the rise of the modern state. Uh, that's his, his argument in a nutshell. And when you read his book, it actually makes a lot of sense. Isolated in a Western European context. The, the, where Nagashino comes into this is that he uses Nagashino as kind of the see it's not just Western Europe example in his argument. Uh, he shows that you know guns were introduced by the Europeans in 1542. <laughs> you know, insert laughable line here, but we'll we'll go with that for his purposes of argument. Um, and then no, you know, not much more than 30 years later, they're being adapted and used in exactly this way by Oda Nobunaga at Nagashino, and he wins this fantastic battle against uh, the Takeda. And then he, and, of course, says it's uh, uh, 20, 30 years before that method was ever That's right, and, and see, they did it even before uh, the uh, the Europeans thought of it. It was first developed as a con uh, concept, according to him, by the Dutch in the 1590s. So And uh, actually, on that specific subject, mm -hmm. uh, when I was taking my military history class in college, mm -hmm. Uh, we were reading that book, and I was actually doing my thesis in that class on, uh, I think it was uh, Oda Nobunaga's advancements from 1560 to 1565, something like that. But uh, So we came to that section, and the uh, professor, who was a real uh, you know European history snob, right, right, right. Rome, the Roman Empire was uh -huh. the greatest, all this. So he spent literally 20 minutes explaining why the European method of everyone firing all their guns at the same time was better than rotating volley fire because of the shock and awe of, of a giant blast of lead while you're charging towards the, uh, the enemy, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, any sense. Yeah, he, he just he refused to acknowledge that uh, rotating volley fire was anything special because it came up, it was invented by the Japanese, or at least credited to the Japanese first. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm going... <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was pretty funny. I just he just didn't he just forget, didn't want forget to, uh, the uh, the the Eurocentric versus you know Japanese history angle. Just speaking as a military officer, that guy's an idiot. So I just remember he was spending uh, he spent yeah. a good uh, fifteen twenty minutes explaining why the the shock and awe of an entire army firing its guns all at the same time had a more you know impact than qualifier. Uh, no. Okay, uh, that wraps up uh, part one of our Nagashino coverage, and uh, you can reach us on Twitter at Samurai Archives. And stay tuned for next week when we finish up our Nagashino podcast with Nate and Travis. Sounds good. All right.